Good morning. The middle school and high school, oh. <laughs> Would you please rose, I mean rise? So what do I do with these? Can I just leave them here? Thank you. It's become a tradition. I forget about it every year. <laughs> All right, let's go to 2 Corinthians 4. Did I ever finish uh, middle school and high school? If you're in here, you, there is a both going on right now, so if you would rather go there, you can. In 2 Corinthians 4, and then we're going to go to chapter 5 also. So let me read the first seven verses of chapter 4, and then beginning in verse 17 of chapter 5. We're talking about an embassy where ambassadors are sent out, the final study in the building of the church. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And now in chapter 5, in verse 17, another therefore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. What a great passage. So, Lord, we thank you again for your word. And, Lord, as I have prepared some things to share, I ask in Jesus' name that you would anoint your word as you have faithfully done time in and time. If we can just stay in your word, we're going to be doing just fine. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and through our hearts being opened, Lord, minister your truth into our hearts that we would hear under what, what is being, what we're talking about. That our lives are not only hearing, but obeying, doing these things. And Lord, particularly as we talk about the ministry and message of reconciliation that's been committed to us as ambassadors, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, the gospel, that Lord, we are... We, we do not lose heart. 
We have an aim and a focus because of what you've done in our lives to see it happen in other people's lives. And so, Lord, I'm asking that you would rekindle if need be. Start it up again, the fire that we would have in our hearts, the, 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 the loving passion to, to, to see people coming to Jesus, rescued from their sins, saved by your grace, and then, Lord, growing as, as your disciples. So, Lord, take this, these things, I pray, break them fresh, minister in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. And so an embassy is the building of reconciliation. We looked at that last week. The means of reconciliation is God's. It is God who reconciles us to, to himself, and are you not thankful that he does? There's no way we could ever reconcile ourselves to God, but God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, the cross there on, on Calvary where he died for our sins, and thus he's not imputing our sins to us, but rather his righteousness through our faith in what Jesus accomplished for us and are we not wonderfully thankful for that? So we implore, as though God is pleading through us, be reconciled to God. Get right with God. The embassy is the building of reconciliation where ambassadors are sent out. And so this morning, in our final study, we want to talk about the ministry of the message. And that is ours. The means is God. The ministry of the message of reconciliation has been given to us. What I'm going to do this morning, as I did with Mother's Day, I'm going to weave some Father's Day thoughts into this study on reconciliation. We are, we are ambassadors. I want to begin by just encouraging all of us dads. We have a very important job to do, and I know that you know that and I know that. And sometimes it weighs on us, and we, we really realize, as we're going to look at this morning, that we're, we're pretty fallible. Can I hear an amen? And, but in our hearts is to be infallible. And God knows our hearts and wants us to be growing as dads. At our board meeting on Thursday night, Doug Clammer, one of our elders, shared from Ephesians chapter 6, where it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with, I like this, it kind of puts a little smile on my face, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So basically what Paul's saying is, hey, obey your parents, because if you don't, they just might kill you. Can I hear any men? <laughs> so obey your parents, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that you may live a long life. Then chapter uh, um, 6 there, verse 4 says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And Kelly Kuhn shared a thought on that that I really had not thought of before. The connection between obedience of our children and us being a little hard on them. And that's what dads are. I think, I think there's, a, there's a good part of being hard. <laughs> but Kelly was just sharing that in the context of that passage, it's, telling, it's, it, it's speaking to dads about not being too hard on our kids. Realizing that we have a desire to see them excel, but we can also be doing things that provoke them to wrath. I've done it many times. I've had heated discussions <laughs> with my boys, and that's what they brought me. So I want to encourage dads. One thing that's been on my heart, and I've shared it with my children, I just want to have a relationship with you every year that you're living. And every year, I'm, I want to have that relationship with you. We're going to have tough times together. It's going to be difficult. But I want to have that relationship with you. Now, there are times when I can't have that. 
And we're going through some of that in our own family. But my desire is to do the best I can to bring them up in the training and admonition, Lord, without them having to be exasperated because of me. Another version says, take them by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. So dads, we got a good, big job to do. Let's keep at it. Amen? Let's keep at it. So it's a wise father, William Shakespeare said, that knows his own child. Harmon Killebrew. Now, I'm a baseball guy, and Harmon Killebrew was way back. How many of you know Harmon Killebrew? Okay. Big slugger guy. He was with the Washington Senators, and then he was with the Minnesota Twins and the Kansas City Royals. He said this, My father used to play with my brother and me in the yard. Mother would come out and say, You're tearing up the grass. My dad would reply, We're not raising grass. We're raising boys. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> Jim Vilvano was another, uh, he was a basketball coach for North Carolina State. In 1983, he took a, a dream season. He took them and won the NCAA title. And I've appreciated the things. He's a very motivational kind of guy. He died of, of uh, bone cancer. He, had, he fought it for 10 months. He died at 48 years old. But he had some tremendous things to say. And one of the quotes that stuck with me is he said, My father gave me the greatest gift anyone could give another person. He believed in me. Isn't that fantastic? And I think of our Heavenly Father. Hey, he believes in us. He is with us. Vilvano said, Cancer can take away all my physical abilities. It cannot touch my mind. It cannot touch my heart. It cannot touch my soul. He said, time is very precious to me. I don't know how much I have left, and I have some things, some things that I would like to say. Hopefully, he said, at the end, I will have said something that will be important to other people too. And so it goes. Our desires that our lives, first and foremost, impact those closest to us as ambassadors of Christ. That our lives are lived in such a way that we're thanking God for every moment, every day he gives us, but then we're investing our time and energies as best we can to live our lives with the ministry of the message of reconciliation to God. Having been reconciled ourselves, we have something to communicate that is so incredible for those with whom we have to do. And so the ministry of the message of reconciliation is ours. Now notice what he says there. He says this ministry of the message, the ministry itself, we don't lose heart in that ministry. Notice, therefore, since we have this, 2 Corinthians 4.1, since we have this ministry, which, by the way, is the ministry of the gospel, you'll find that in verses 3 and 4, also back in chapter 3, what we're talking about is the gospel. So since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. And he goes on, Paul in 2 Corinthians, you might want to go read it. I mean, he is pouring out his heart all the difficulties that he faced, and they were tremendous difficulties that he faced. Persecutions and tribulations. He said, out of which the Lord delivered me, and the Lord will deliver me for every evil work. He knew that God would deliver, but it didn't stop him from having to go through that. And so he said, we do not lose heart. Why? Because we have received mercy. That's the gospel. God has not dealt with us according to our sins. He's reconciled. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He reconciled us to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Are you not going, yea, for God's mercy? Because there is none of us in this room 
nor in the world that would be reconciled to God apart from his mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He shows us mercy continuously. That's why we don't lose heart. There's always more mercy. His mercies are new how often? Every morning. Mercy upon mercy upon mercy. I tell you, sometimes it's good just to sit and realize, you know, if God wasn't merciful, I'd be a little pow- a pile of powder. Be over. But he is merciful. And so we have received these things. The quality of a father can be seen in the goals, dreams, and aspirations he sets, not only for himself, but for those that he loves, for his family. And again, I think of our Heavenly Father. He has goals and aspirations and desires for our lives. And he begins by saying, I'm not going to deal with you according to your iniquities. I'm going to pour out my mercy upon you. Paul talks in this passage also about the grace of God, giving us what we don't deserve. You know, when my father didn't have my hand, he had my back. God has our back continuously. I have the backs of my children continuously. I might have a hard time with them and want to kill them. But the minute somebody else wants to do that, I'm going to kill that other one. Can I hear an amen? (laughs) So we have received the gospel. We're ministers of the new covenant. This is the ministry that we have. We we are the ministers of the Holy Spirit. Notice in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Look at this for a moment. If the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. The the law given to Moses was a glorious thing. Nothing wrong with it. But it couldn't accomplish what God only accomplished in Christ. And so he says, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So we are saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the mercy and grace of God to us. Notice also in verse 9, if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness succeeds much more in glory. Our message of the gospel is that God has imputed to us his righteousness. We're right with God through faith in what Jesus accomplished for us. He has declared us righteous, justified in his sight by the blood of Jesus. Hey, we might have difficult times, but we do not lose heart. These are the things that are ours in the ministry of the message of reconciliation. Notice also that we as mortals manifest the truth. Our lives are speaking to people's consciences, not just their mind though it starts there. Notice, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, verse 2 of chapter 4, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Our salvation, the reason we don't lose heart is because God is merciful. He's filled us with his spirit. He's declared us right with him. We may make a lot of mistakes, But it comes back to this whole idea that he is living his life through us. And when people see our lives as they're connected now to Christ, something happens that's deeper than just the mind. They begin thinking about their lives in accordance with something that's real in our lives. It's fantastic. When when Stephen was stoned in the book of Acts, it says that Paul 
Saul was at that stoning when he was killed, and they were laying their coats at the feet of Saul of Tarsus. Later on, when Jesus arrested Paul on the road to Damascus and knocked him off his high horse with that bright light, Jesus said to Saul, who would become Paul the Apostle, who wrote Corinthians, he said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Meaning, something happened, I believe, at the stoning of Stephen, where Saul saw him being stoned, looking up into heaven, don't lay this to their charge, Saul the apostle, Saul of Tarsus, saw something there, and he couldn't get away from it. You know, I'm amazed sometimes what people see in my life. I remember one time sitting up with a bunch of construction workers. I used to be in construction. They used to call me Brother Kev. And we'd have discussions at lunchtime, usually about Jesus coming back. And one time I got into this heated discussion with one of those guys, and it was not pretty. You ever have one of those? And I thought, I just blew my whole witness. I mean, I'm passionate, but it's another thing to be downright angry. <laughs> and so I went, I felt like, oh, man. Little did I know that there's a guy named Charlie Parham that I've told you about. Big African-American guy who had been watching me, listening to me. And when we had a job out in Palm Sprint or Desert, Palm Desert, hotter than a pistol out there, we'd start at six, we'd done at two, we're building construction, each given our own room one night. Who knocks on my door but Charlie Parham? He was having trouble in his marriage, difficulty in, in some things going on with his kids. He comes to me, thinking, you see, our lives are different. When we know Christ, there's something different that's supernatural and spiritual. There's something different in peace that we have. There's something different in confidence that we have where Jesus is living in us. And we may not be aware of it. We may think, <laughs> and we can have problems. I got that. But is it not amazing that we manifest the truth? We manifest things that people see. My father didn't tell me how to live. He lived and let me watch him do it. That's what we want to be aiming for. Mark Twain said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in seven years. <laughs> Someone put it this way, by the time a man realizes that his father was right, he has a son who thinks he's wrong. <laughs> hey, look what he says in verse 3. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. How come? Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, how? Who do not believe. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. In other words, they're listening to the gospel, they want nothing to do with it. And Satan is happy to help them along with that. He's happy to keep them in darkness. So as we live our lives for Christ, often the problem in other people seeing and hearing and believing the gospel is because Satan is at work. By the way, did you know that Satan is alive and powerful on planet Earth? 
He hasn't stopped. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rules of darkness in this age. There are, there are forces of darkness that are powerfully at work to keep people from seeing Jesus Christ in our lives or hearing of Jesus and the gospel as we speak to them. Both are needed. He says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. You see, we're just living for Jesus. Jesus. Our lives are committed to him. Who are we preaching? They don't need to hear about me. God forbid that they left wanting to be like me. We want them to be like Jesus. We want them to see Jesus, understand, hey, the reason that our lives are different is because we know Christ. What you're seeing of, eter of any eternal uh, substance is because the Holy Spirit lives in us. We're right with God. We have peace with God. And thus we operate from a whole nother dimension. You know, when I was growing up, I'm just like this. I'm 110 all the way. Not 100%, 110%. And I had a lot of friends growing up, and we, had, you know, we were having lots of fun, come about 16, 17, 18. And when I was partying, I was partying. And so when I, came to, when I came back to Christ in 1976, and my friends heard about it, they said, ah, he'll be, he'll be past that. Not going to last. He's in it, but he'll be out of it. You know what? It's been 38 years, and I ain't out of it. You see, something happens that's of such eternal significance. And the devil wants to keep people from experiencing that which God did. You see, he's, he's lost me, the devil. He's lost, I hope, everyone in this room. Now, he still tempts, don't forget that. He's the tempter, he's the accuser. But may we remember that many of the things that we are thinking at times, many of the things that we're experiencing at times are because of spiritual forces of darkness that are opposed to us even after salvation. And they come and tempt us to do evil. They come and tempt us in ways that we really must realize. How did Jesus answer the temptations of the devil? He said what? It is written. This is what's going to keep us from temptation. This is what's going to give us the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith that we must lift up in the armor of God in Ephesians 6. Taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. Many things that we need to be doing so that we're ready and prepared when the enemy does come. And he will come. We have so many things in our culture today that are destroying the lives of our young people. Make any parent weep whose child has gone in the way of some of these temptations that are out there. Be they drugs or alcohol or sexual immorality. It's rampant. And we as fathers need to be standing in the gap. Praying for them and asking them and talking to them. But the devil is so subtle to come in and snatch another one. And he doesn't stop with the youth and young people. He's continuously there to seek to destroy, rob, kill, and destroy people's lives. We just had, a, many of you know, a well-known Calvary pastor in Florida who fell. And Pastor Chuck, my pastor, said he, he would weep over that because the devil got him. 
He deceives us. He's the deceiver of the brethren. He's the accuser of the brethren. Sometimes I have to battle off these accusations, these deceptions, these lies. We all face those things. And when we're tired, so much the more. You know, the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And what did they do? They took a nap. Now, I think there's a place for a nap. And I'm looking forward in the next couple of weeks to taking a nap. <laughs> but when we're tired, we're more susceptible to these things. The enemy doesn't stop. He's relentless. Paul said we're not to be ignorant of his devices. I'm learning as I go, there are a lot of devices and a lot of schemes that he has. And he's just like with Job, he's sizing us up. Now, I don't think I have Satan himself. That one of his little, you know, whatever sends him to me. But nonetheless, I'm no match for them without Christ in my life, without the Holy Spirit in my life, without the Word of God in my life, without prayer in my life. Satan seeks to veil the truth from people's lives. In people's minds. Two boys were walking home from Sunday school after hearing a stern sermon on the devil. One said to the other, what do you think about all this Satan stuff? The other boy replied, well, you know how Santa Claus turned out. It's probably your dad. Let it sink in a little bit. You know, the first service loved that one. Now, I, I don't know what's happening here. But on a more serious, did you get it finally? Okay. <laughs> on a serious note, I received an email this week from the Institute for Creation Research with this title, Brainwashing Children to Suppress Design Intuition. The Wall Street Journal praised psychological research on kindergartners that demonstrates how a picture-rich storybook could replace children's intuitive inferences of design with Darwinian natural selection. The aim of this research was to intentionally suppress children's common-sense ways so that kids, through these picture-book interventions, can understand that animal design, which looks like they were built with a goal in mind, actually arose by natural processes that had no goal and no mind. Now, I, can, I, I graduated high school in 1971, but I can tell you, and I was raised in church, I can tell you when I saw that chart, you know, that, that, the chart of the, how it, I just thought, oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't think twice about it. That's what's going on. But now, see, the devil is so astute. And he puts into people's minds these things who don't want anything to do with God. So how can we get the children past what would just be a normal understanding of that's how it's got to be? People everywhere generally recognize the straightforward analogy between living things and man-made structures. Both have multiple parts working together for a specific purpose. In other words, they were designed. It didn't and could not just happen. It drives, uh, if I might vent, it just drives me crazy when I see these things and they just say, well, it must be 8 billion years old and this is how it worked. No, no fact to it, just this is what it is. And it's amazing how the devil has blinded, really, people, and they just buy into it. 
Dundini. Even young children do not need formal training to discern between discern the mechanical devices do not make themselves. And that people make them with a goal-directed design. You see, when you buy into the evolutionary theory, all of a sudden you've just launched and jettisoned any hope, any purpose, any reason. And that's what's happening in our culture. You jettisoned God's law. You've jettisoned God's love. You've jettisoned God. And people want to do that. In fact, Romans 1 talks about that. The wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hold it down. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and God. you got to love the Bible. It says, this is what you're looking at. Suppressing the truth. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him of God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise... They became fools. What is it? You know, you're foolish if you believe in creation. Hey, in Jesus Christ and through his word and by the Holy Spirit of power, God penetrates even the darkest blindness. He rescues people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He rescues them in our relationship with them. As we live it out and he manifests truth and he manifests the life of Jesus. Now, how does God do that? Well, I don't really like this part of the ministry of the message. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. What do people see? They see you and me. They can't see my soul, my, they see my body, what I'm doing, how I'm living. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what, was, what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. We know it's true. Knowing that he raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound in the glory of God. He's talking about that interpersonal relationship that impacts others for Christ. The passion, the one passion of Paul's life was to proclaim the gospel of God. Listen, he welcomed heartbreaks. He welcomed disillusionments. He welcomed tribulation for one reason only, that these things kept him unmoved in his passion and devotion for the gospel. He saw them as ways in which God was manifesting Christ to many other people. And the manifestation of the life of Jesus is often in suffering. Paul said that I may know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings 
being conformed to his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see, the resurrection life only comes through the death of the old life. We're being renewed day by day, Paul says. Look at verse 16. We do not lose heart. Even though the outer man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. This ministry, the message of reconciliation, is a daily renewal of the believer. For we know, verse 1 of chapter 5, we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You see, the message is not only from our of our mortality, it's of eternity. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I can't wait for my next habitation. That's a part of our message. He says, for in this we groan. You see, we know certain things, but we groan. Do you groan today? We groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened. Not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up with life. I think it's always wonderful on one side to do the funeral of a believer. This life, first of all, it points to how short life is. We just had one with Lazaro. Many of you knew Lazaro. He was shot and died from his wound. We had that service in here, and yes, we do weep, but we do not weep as those who have no hope. People are looking for answers as far as what happens in death. We know that if this earthly tent, this body is destroyed, we have a building of God not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, prepared by God for us. Jesus said, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a mansion for you. Now, I don't know what that thing's going to look like, but I know this, I'm not going to need orthotics. Not going to need, I don't think I'm going to need a haircut. Not sure about that one. The heavenly barber. <laughs> I don't know what that's going to be like, but I look forward to that. We groan because we know what's coming. Four men are in the hospital waiting room because their wives are having babies. A nurse goes up to the first father and says, Congratulations, you're the father of twins. That's odd, answers the man. I work for the Minnesota twins. A nurse comes to the second guy, Congratulations, you're the father of triplets. That's weird, answers the second man. I work for the 3M company. A nurse tells the third man, Congratulations, you're the father of quadruplets. That's strange, he answers. I work for the Four Seasons Hotel. The last man is groaning. He's banging his head against the wall. The nurse says, what's wrong? What's wrong? The other says, I work for 7-Up. <laughs> we groan, earnestly desiring to be delivered. That's the ministry, the message of reconciliation. And we're confident, Paul says. Now, he says in verse 9 of chapter 5, the ministry, the message, we make it our aim. Number one, to be pleasing to him. You see, we get it. We understand we're accountable. And so we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be pleasing to him. You see, mortality, 
is the proving ground for eternity. One day we are going to be evaluated by our master. One day as ambassadors, we're going to stand before him and give account. The son says to his father, for $20, I'll be good. Dad says, oh, yeah? When I was your age, I was good for nothing. <laughs> the teacher's on the phone says, you say Michael has a cold and can't come to school today? To whom am I speaking? The voice says, this is my father. <laughs> Dad says, how do you like fourth grade? Son says, it isn't much fun. The dad says, that's too bad. It was the best three years of my life. <laughs> the father of five children had won a, a toy at a raffle. He called his kids together to ask which one should have the present. Who is the most obedient, he asks. Who never talks back to his mother and who does everything mother says? Being evaluated. Five small voices replied in unison, okay, daddy, you get the toy. We are going to be accountable for our ministry of the message. It's going to be evaluated. How do we do in investing it and sharing it and living it? After church service, a little boy told the pastor, when I grow up, I'm going to give you some money. Well, thank you, the pastor replied, but why? Because my daddy says you're one of the poorest preachers he's ever heard. <laughs> I hope that's not the evaluation I get, but... <laughs> We make it our aim to be pleasing to him. We make it our aim to persuade men, persuade them. That's verbal. It's also how we live. We want to be knowing the terror of the Lord. That's what he says there. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We also want to be well known to God. That's what Paul goes on to say. But we are well known to God. And I also trust or well, well known in your consciences. But he says this thing, I know that God knows. In other words, Paul lived his life continuously as being an open book before God. Being, as it were, evaluated continuously. He understood that God loved him and mercifully saved him. He had a responsibility. And so Paul said, hey, I know that God knows. Other people may not see that, know it, but I know that I know that God knows where I'm at. Open book. Our lives are always being examined by the Holy Spirit. It's a good examination. It doesn't matter what other people might see or think. What matters is what God knows. Paul said being well known to God. What matters is how we're living. We make it our aim to persuade men by knowing the terror of the Lord by being well-known to God and also by knowing Christ according to the cross. Notice what he says in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us, the love of Christ demonstrated on the cross, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, verse 16, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. In other words, to know Christ is to know him post-cross. He said we have our own crosses. So it's not a feel-good gospel in that sense. The message we have is that we're accountable to God. 
and the things that he's invested in us, the treasure that we have in earthen vessels, is to be bringing forth fruit. It's to be invested in other people's lives so that God can use our lives to then bring more for his kingdom. And so it's knowing Christ according to the cross. Some people would like to know him pre-cross. He's just going to take care of all my problems. And this is going to be a, a real good feel-good story. Hey, the necessity of death because of sin is the paramount message of the gospel. That God had to come in and die for the sins of the world. And thus he calls us to a crucified life. A life given and sacrificed for him and for his sake out of love for him. The cross is the difference in our lives. That's why he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Paul said the cross is where the world's been crucified to me and me to the world. There's a cutting off of the things that are in the way of God using our lives to preach the gospel. Mark Wahlberg said something, and I believe he's a Christian. He's, he's an actor. I pray to be a good servant to God, a father, a husband, a son, a friend, a brother, an uncle, a good neighbor, a good leader to those who look up to me, a good follower to those who are serving God and doing the right thing. That's a good prayer that we might offer. And then we make it our aim, we'll close here, to implore men to be reconciled to God out of our own heart. And this is my prayer for us as we close. I'm going to watch a, a video and then just, I've asked Joe to come up and lead us in a little response time. I want to be moved in my heart with a burden for people who are lost in sin. And it comes and goes at times. I know that if I will be intentionally sharing with people, God fans the flames. But it's so easy for me to just get into my routines and to pass by opportunities where God wants to use my life, the ministry of the message, whether it be through persecutions or difficulties or whether it be just through a time of sharing the gospel. When I, was, when I first came back to Christ down in California, every weekend, two nights a week, we're out on Huntington Beach Pier. We're going down to another place and we're preaching the gospel. It's so fantastic. But it's so easy to lose the edge and the heart as an ambassador of Christ. So I hope that the Holy Spirit will just nudge us maybe this morning. That we want to implore men to be reconciled to God. Please, get right with God. For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for you. That you might be right with God. You might know his mercy and his grace. You might know the hope that we have. You might know a heart that is so steadfast and immovable because God loves you and wants to save you. And therefore, we don't lose heart. Even though the outer man is perishing, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. And they see those things and they desire after those things. You know, we're not bringing a message of war to a world at peace. We're bringing a message of peace to a world at war. And we're soldiers, as it were, in a world dark, dismal, despairing. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. 
but he who does not believe will be condemned. Do we believe that? The ultimate decision in a person's life of their destiny in eternity is in our ministry of the message of reconciliation to God. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us to be reconciled to God. So we're going to watch this, this video. I found it very moving. This was uh, played at the Perspectives class, which we, uh, a number of people from our church went through on missions. It's a college-level class on missions. Changed some hearts, but this video someone sent me, I thought it was fantastic. And so Joe's going to lead us after that. So let's give our heart and attention to this. The job is not done in the world that Christ gave us to do and the mandate is still binding on us today. That's why we speak of unreached people groups. But the missions is the back-breaking, culture-penetrating, darkness-shattering initial work to penetrate, plant the church, see it flourish, get its own elders, train its own people, evangelize its own networks. That's the task of missions. It's not over. And that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And the alternative is hell. And millions and millions and millions of people are on their way there. And we have the only means of escape in our heads and in our hearts. Jesus Christ. There are many prodigal sons on our city streets they run searching for shell.
So count the cost, brothers and sisters. This is not an invitation to an easy life. For 2,000 years, thousands and thousands of missionaries, the unnamed, no biographies written about them, just unnamed people of whom the world is not worthy, have counted this cost and put their lives at risk and reached the loss with the only message of salvation. This morning we're going to just have a little...